I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we look to the subtext that connects the confusing parts of scripture to discern the ideals that are being presented. This week, we reach the end of the book of Leviticus, this handbook of worship that we've been in for nearly six months. Now, for most of us, when we first read the book of Leviticus, we begin to scratch our heads and wonder in confusion. There are so many things in this book that we have a very hard time connecting to. And why do we need to read this book anyway? It is Leviticus. It is matters pertaining to the Levites. There is no real need to read this book anyway, right? The things that are contained in this book have passed away since the Levitical system of sacrifices and ritual purity is no longer part of our worship. At least, this is the common understanding by most when they first encounter the book. But as we've gone through this book, I pray that this view has changed for you. The book of Leviticus is, for all intents and purposes, a handbook of living in the presence of a holy God, a handbook for how to connect and communicate with that God, how to approach his presence without causing offense, how to live in his character, and how to live with all others who are also part of his kingdom. And as we've progressed through this book, we have discovered that Leviticus is broken up into four sections that cover each of these themes. First off was the topic of sacrifice, how to approach God, the attitudes that we should hold when worshiping Him. And each of the sacrifices described for us a different form of attitude for our worship. First, there was the Ola, or the burnt or ascending offering, a sacrifice that is rooted in the fear of Hashem, the awe that we should all have when coming before Him. This fear is not unwarranted, just as Esther had fear when approaching her husband and king. So, too, we should have a measure of fear when approaching God. And in this is something that we read throughout all of Scripture. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of Hashem. Second, there's the mincha offering, a bloodless offering of grains. And this word, mincha, it means literally gift or tribute. And this is the idea behind this sacrifice, a gift that is given to a loved one, or alternatively, tribute that's being given to a king. Third, the shlamim, peace or fellowship offering. The sacrifice is broken up into three subsets, and each of the subsets reveals a different way of relating to God. But also, the sacrifice includes within inherently opportunities to relate to each other. Because this type of sacrifice takes on the practice of a shared meal with others and with God. 
The first type of the Shalmim offering is the voluntary, a sacrifice that is given simply because the worshiper wishes to share a meal with God and with his friends. The second is the thanksgiving sacrifice. This sacrifice is given when a person wished to thank God for something specific, and this sacrifice meal gave the opportunity for the worshiper to share the things that he was thankful for and to give praise to God. The third Shlomim sacrifice was the vow offering. This was a sacrifice that was offered when the worshiper had taken a vow and chose to seal the vow by building up accountability partners around him and as a sealing of sorts before God. The fourth major type of sacrifice is the chat'at, or the sin offering. This sacrifice is one that is used to cover and remove the uncleanness that is produced simply by being people. The sacrifice was not given only for the purpose of committing some sort of transgression, but rather it was given when a person came into contact with uncleanness of any sort. And it was this sacrifice that cleansed away the uncleanness that then encroached on the holy things. And we see this sacrifice being used in all sorts of application that we would not consider sin. A woman giving birth, being healed from sorrow or leprosy, being healed from an abnormal genital discharge. And several other applications reveal that this sacrifice is not really about sin as we conceptualize it, but rather it is about the cleansing away of the stain of death that we as creatures of death leave behind us as we move through life. And a subset of this sacrifice is the asham, guilt, or trespass offering. It is this sacrifice that is brought when an offense has occurred. And we often consider that this applies only when a person has committed an offense towards God. But here we see that this sacrifice is often required when an offense is committed towards other men. But then again, as Joseph recognized when tempted by Potiphar's wife, an offense towards another person is an offense towards God. And after the topic of sacrifice, there is a break taken in the text for the one and only narrative of the book of Leviticus. And this is a regular occurrence throughout the book. Between each of the major topics is a buffer section from one to three chapters long that brings together all four of the main themes and explores them through the lens of the priesthood. In this case, for three chapters, we are treated to the story of the ordination of the priests, the inauguration of the tabernacle, and the fallout of some of these new priests taking liberties in their newfound status. Liberties that led to their deaths. Just after this break, then comes the topic of uncleanness. Now, uncleanness is one of those things that was only necessary to deal with when God's presence dwelt with man in the tabernacle or the temple. Coming before God with uncleanness on you was an affront to him. And why? Well, as we explored the various forms of uncleanness, we discovered that they are each associated with death, corruption, or failure of the human form in some way. What animals to eat? Well, an improper diet will lead to death. Added to this, the majority of the animals that are allowed do not require that other things die for them to live, with some few exceptions. A woman giving birth? Well, the manner of giving birth that women experience today is a direct result of the fall. There is contained in this process a corruption that is only present because of the curse of death. A person living with sorrows. Well, this condition puts a person in a state of living death, alive, but shunned by all, alone, helpless, and exiled from their life. An abnormal, or even normal, discharge from the genitals. 
Every time that this occurs, there is a loss of potential life. A seed dies without producing fruit. Even when there is a successful conception, millions of seed die. Now, there is even the coming into contact with dead bodies that is not presented in this book, but which we will read of in the book of Numbers. Each of these things is associated with death. But as I said, we don't have to deal with this anymore. And that is the point. The topic of uncleanness teaches us about how far from God our human form and our existence is. It teaches us that we are in need of a Savior that can defeat death before we can live in the presence of God wholly. Just after the topic of uncleanness, we encounter the central theme of the book of Leviticus, the very center of the Torah itself, if we look at it chiastically. The Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur. It's on this day that a man is allowed to enter into the presence of God. It's on this day that the articles of the tabernacle are all cleansed of the uncleanness of the people. And it's on this day that the sins of the people are dealt with and sent away into the wilderness. And then after this, the topic shifts to holiness. And this can be hard to spot in the first chapter of this topic, as the discussion on this topic begins with the opposite of holiness, defilement. How to avoid becoming defiled and thus revoking the holiness that has been bestowed on every member of the community of Israel. And after the discussion of defilement, then comes the discussion of how to live out holiness. And as we explored this topic, we discovered that lived out holiness is simply acting in and living out the character of God. And after the topic of holiness, we find the last of the separator sections, as holiness is explored in the priesthood, as well as holiness within the community at large, before the final topic of the book is broached. And that final topic is the topic of community. The people of God celebrating together, policing each other, acting out of compassion towards each other, and the property that they have been given, and reaping reward or punishment together. This final part of the book of Leviticus highlights the communal aspects of Israel. The individuality that we are used to in the West was a foreign concept to them. Everyone stood and fell together. And that brings us to this last chapter of Leviticus. This final chapter is one that continues something that has been one of our primary issues since the beginning of the book of Leviticus. What does this mean? How do we connect to this? And what does this reveal about our relationship to God? This chapter is admittedly rather dull and confusing, but it covers a topic that is fitting for both the final theme and the closing out of the book of Leviticus. So let's read Leviticus 27 and then dive in further. And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When a man separates a vow by your evaluation of lives unto Hashem, when your evaluation is of a male from twenty years old up to sixty years old, then your evaluation shall be fifty shekels of silver, according to the shekel of the set-apart place. And if it is a female, then your evaluation shall be thirty shekels. And if from five years old up to twenty years old, then your evaluation for a male shall be twenty shekels, and for a female, ten shekels. And if from a new moon old up to five years old, then your evaluation for a male shall be five shekels of silver, and for a female your evaluation shall be three shekels of silver. And if from sixty years old and above, if it is a male, then your evaluation shall be fifteen shekels, and for a female ten shekels. 
But if he is too poor to pay your evaluation, then he shall present himself before the priest, and the priest shall set a value for him according to the ability of him who vowed, and the priest shall value him. And if it is a beast of which they bring an offering to Hashem, all such given to Hashem is set apart. He is not to replace it or exchange it, good for spoilt or spoilt for good. And if he at all exchanges beast for beast, then both it and the one exchanged for it is set apart. And if it is any unclean beast of which they do not bring an offering to Hashem, then he shall present the beast before the priest, and the priest shall value it whether it is spoilt or good. According to your evaluation, O priest, so shall it be. But if he indeed redeems it, then he shall add one-fifth to your evaluation. And when a man sets his house apart to be set apart to Hashem, then the priest shall value it, whether it is good or spoilt, as the priest values it, so it stands. And if he who sets it apart does redeem his house, then he shall add one-fifth of the silver to your evaluation to it, and it shall be his. And if a man sets apart to Hashem a field that he owns, then your evaluation shall be according to the seed for it, a homer of barley seed at fifty shekels of silver. And if he sets his field apart from the year of Yovel, according to your evaluation, it stands. But if he sets his field apart after the Yovel, then the priest shall reckon to him the silver due according to the years that remain until the year of Yovel, and it shall be deducted from your evaluation. And if he who sets the field apart ever wishes to redeem it, then he shall add one-fifth of the silver of your evaluation to it, and it shall be his. And if he does not redeem the field, or if he has sold the field to another man, it is no longer redeemed. But the field, when it is released in the Yovel, it is set apart to Hashem as a dedicated field to be the possession of the priest. And if a man sets apart to Hashem a field which he has bought, which is not the field of his possession, then the priest shall reckon to him the amount of your evaluation up to the year of Yovel, and he shall give your evaluation on that day, set apart to Hashem. In the year of Yovel the field returns to him from whom he bought it, and to him whose is the possession of the land. And all of your evaluations are to be according to the shekel of the set-apart place, twenty geras to the shekel. However, a firstborn of the beast, which is firstborn to Hashem, no man sets it apart, whether bull or sheep. It belongs to Hashem. And if among the unclean beasts, then he shall ransom it according to your evaluation, and shall add one-fifth to it. And if it is not redeemed, then it shall be sold according to your evaluation. However, whatever a man lays under the ban for Hashem, of all that he has, man and beast, or the field of his possession is not sold or redeemed. Whatever is laid under the ban is most set apart to Hashem. No one under the ban, under the ban among men, is to be ransomed, but shall certainly be put to death. And all the tithe of the land, of the seed of the land, or the fruit of the tree, belongs to Hashem. It is set apart to Hashem. If a man indeed redeems any of his tithes, he adds one-fifth to it. And the entire tithe of the herd and of the flock, all that passes under the rod, the tenth one is set apart to Hashem. He does not inquire whether it is good or spoilt, nor does he exchange it. And if he exchanges it at all, then both it and the one exchanged for it are set apart. It is not redeemed. These are the commands which Hashem commanded Moshe for the children of Israel on Mount Sinai. Leviticus 27 is one of those chapters that introduces some controversy in our modern world. Now we see listed in the beginning of this chapter a breakdown of what is seen as the value of certain people. A strong man in his prime? Well, he's worth more than a female in her prime. 
A male infant? Well, he's worth more than a female infant. And this listing of valuations is one that has caused many who have bought into the Annie Oakley way of thinking of anything you can do, I can do better, to scowl at the Bible and to point out just how backwards this book, the Bible, really is. Because our society is attempting to blur the lines between male and female, to erase our differences and to meld us into one. Haven't you heard? You can cross that line now. If you are unhappy with your gender, you can change. Because God really didn't know what he was doing when he made humanity. And he really didn't know what he was doing when he made you. Separating us by male and female, well, that was just a huge mistake. And so now, with enlightenment and technology, we can erase that line. And the song from the musical can finally become a reality. Anything you can do, I can do better. This is a lie. Men and women are not the same. We were created for different purposes. But alternatively, the valuations that are placed on the various sexes in this chapter are not implying what the detractors would impose upon this chapter. The straw man argument that the Bible sees women as worth less. Now, this is not accurate. The Bible does not present women as of less value than men. It presents women of different value than men. The fact of the matter is that when we look at this chapter and the monetary values that are assigned to the various ages and sexes, this is not providing a commentary on the inherent value of the person. Rather, it's providing a commentary on the economic value of a person. To translate this into inherent value is equivalent to making the claim that the only inherent value that anyone has is economic value. We are only worth what we can produce that is of economic value. That is to say that if you cannot or do not produce something of economic value, then your inherent value as a human is less. This is a false equivalency. Women and men simply are not the same. We were not created the same. We were created with inherent differences within us. Men, we were created to work, to produce, to be the driving economic force in the world, to create the things that are necessary to continue life, food, shelter, and the like, and to act as guardians and protectors against the darkness. It was man's charge and curse in the garden that reveals this to us. Genesis 2.15 And Hashem Elohim took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to garden, to labor and create, and to guard and protect. Then the curse in chapter 3, Genesis 3.17 And to the man he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree of which I commanded you, saying, Do not eat of it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you are to eat of it all the days of your life, and the ground shall bring forth thorns and thistles for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you are to eat the bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for dust you are, and to dust you return. And that's all that this chapter is recognizing. Men were created to be physically powerful. We have larger bone structures, we have greater muscle mass, we're taller, and the differences go on and on and on. Are there some few exceptions? Of course, there's always slight exceptions, but that doesn't change the rule. 
we were designed to do physical labor and physical tasks of strength. Women, on the other hand, also produce, but their production takes on the form of nurturing and assisting in the areas that a man simply cannot cover. And not a single one of us would be here if it were not for a woman who bore us and who went through the pain necessary to birth us. And these, too, are expressed in the charge and curse that we read directed towards the woman in the beginning. Genesis 2.18 and then 21-23 through And Hashem Elohim said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I am going to make a helper for him as his counterpart. And then 21 through 23, so Hashem Elohim caused a deep sleep to fall on the man, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in his place. And the rib which Hashem Elohim had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one is called woman, because she was taken out of man. Woman was created to be that helper for man, a counterpart to do what he could not, and cannot. And then, in chapter 3, the curse. Genesis 3.16 To the woman he said, I greatly increase your sorrow and your conception. Bring forth children in pain, and your desire is for your husband, and he does rule over you. And so we find that the value of a woman is found in the things that man simply cannot do. Childbirth, nurturing, life, making the house that the man has built into a home that is comfortable and livable. Again, we find that female bodies reflect this role that was created for them by God. Men were created to focus on the outward, projecting force and order outward into the world. Women were created to focus inward, to the home, the heart, creating and restoring order inward. There are vital and important roles for both men and women in our world, and economic activity is only a very small part of the value that we have as people. In this chapter, it's not commentary on the full and inherent value of a person. Rather, it's only commenting on the economic value that a person has when it comes to doing work for the temple or tabernacle. For what is it that's happening in this chapter? A person is separating themselves or being separated by one who has authority over them for service to Hashem. Now, there are some commentators that take the view that this listing of values presented here is applied in every case. This view says that when a person took a vow that separated them to Hashem, that this was always a rash vow, and so God provides a way to escape the vow. In essence, What they were really doing is making a promise to pay a monetary value to the temple and the tabernacle when they vowed a person. The person never actually was allowed to enter into the service in any way. Now, I don't believe this to be the case because we see a young boy that is dedicated to Hashem in 1 Samuel 1 that serves in the tabernacle as a servant boy. 1 Samuel 1.11, And she vowed and said, O Lord of hosts, if you would indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. When the boy Samuel was weaned, he entered into the service of the tabernacle, to the point where he slept in the holy place, even though he was not of the tribe of Levi, but rather of the tribe of Ephraim. First Samuel 2.18, Now Samuel was ministering before Hashem, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. 
In 1 Samuel 3, 1 through 3, Now the boy Samuel was ministering to to Hashem in the presence of Eli, and the word of Hashem was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of Hashem where the ark of God was. If what these commentators assert is true, Samuel would have never entered into the service of the tabernacle. Instead, he would have simply had his price paid, and he would have grown up at home with his parents. Rather, I believe that what's being spoken of here is what other commentators assert, is that a person could separate themselves by a vow to Hashem, something we're going to read of in the book of Numbers. Now, this meant that they entered into the service of the tabernacle to work at whatever task was assigned to them. It could be maintenance, building, crafting, cleaning, even emptying the latrines. The service that was accomplished was of economic value, and the person entered into the service willingly. At any point of this service, however, if the vowed person was unable to keep the vow, then there was a process of redemption to excuse the person from their service. And that is where these valuations come into play. These valuations were the cost that was necessary to redeem a person who had been vowed from their vow. We read of this very thing being carried out in the New Testament, Acts 21, 23-24. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourselves along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance to the law. Now in this chapter, false accusers had come against Paul and were making the claim that he was teaching people to forsake Moses and to no longer keep the Torah. And that was a problem. Something had to be done. A public show had to be made that Paul was not overturning Moses and still keeping the law himself and encouraging others to do so. And so he went with four men who were finishing their vows and Paul paid the necessary price to redeem them from their vows. Now, how do we know this was a redemption of this men? It's clearly stated that these four men were currently under a vow. Not that their vow was ending or had come to an end. And it's only after the price was paid that is described here in Leviticus could these men then shave their heads and be released from the vow that they had taken. But there's another pointer in this chapter, that the cost associated with being redeemed. Uh, We can understand this as to mean being released from a vow. If we continue on to animals that are set apart to Hashem or houses or land, we find each of these situations that the cost associated with these is the price for redemption, a price for releasing the vowed animal or property from the vow that had been spoken. Now, in the case of animals, if the animal that is dedicated is one that could be sacrificed, then the animal was to be sacrificed. It could not be exchanged. And if anyone attempted an exchange of one animal for one that was vowed, then both animals then belong to Hashem. However, in the case of a non-sacrificial animal, then the animal would enter into the service of the tabernacle and become a beast of burden or serve in some other capacity. If, however, the person who vowed the animal wished to redeem the animal, to release it from the vow, then a price was to be set for the animal, and the person was to pay the value that was set plus 20%, to redeem the animal. And when it came to a house, the same thing stands. 
If the person who vowed the house to service of Hashem chooses to redeem the house back into his possession, then he is to pay the value of the house plus 20%. If a field is set apart, the produce belongs to the tabernacle. If the field is to be redeemed, then the value of the field is to be set according to the seed needed to sow the field times the number of years left until Jubilee. The cost of redemption, then, is that value plus 20%. But just as with every other plot of land in Israel, the land itself was to return to the possession of the family that had received it as an inheritance in the year of Jubilee. And this is the Torah of the things that the people of the community of Israel could set apart for service to God, and how they can release these things from the vow if the need or desire arose. But the chapter and the book, they don't end here. Because now, after discussing all of these things that can become a votive offering to Hashem, the book closes with the exceptions, the things that no man can vow to give God. Why is this? Well, it's because they already belong to him. The firstborn of beasts belongs to Hashem already, Exodus 13, 11-13. When Hashem brings you into the land of Canaan, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, and you shall set apart to Hashem all that first opens the womb, all the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be as Hashem's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. When Hashem killed all the firstborn of Egypt and spared all the firstborn of Israel during the first Passover, then the firstborn of everything became Hashem's possession. The firstborn of sacrificial animals are to be sacrificed, but the firstborn of an unclean animal can be redeemed. In Exodus, we're told that the firstborn of an unclean animal can be redeemed by producing a sacrificial animal to take its place. But here we read that the firstborn of the unclean animal can also be redeemed by paying its value plus 20%. But if the firstborn of an unclean animal is not redeemed, it is to have its neck broken and be killed. It is God's, so send it back to him. Then in verse 28, we read of a different type of dedication to Hashem. This time, it's not a dedication of vow or service. Rather, it's a dedication unto death. And this introduces the topic of the laws of Cherem. Now, this particular law is one where an item, person, or person group is turned over to God through destruction. If there is a thing or person that is placed under the law of Cherem, there is no redemption for that thing or person. The thing is to be destroyed, no exceptions, complete and utter destruction. And we see this law being implemented several times in Scripture. The first time is in the Torah itself. In Deuteronomy 7, we read of this law of Cherem being commanded. Deuteronomy 7, 1-2 When Hashem, your Elohim, brings you into the land which you go to possess, he shall also clear away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when Hashem, your Elohim, gives them over to you, you shall strike them and put them under the ban completely, make no covenant with them, and show them no favor." When Israel began the conquest of the land of Canaan, the people who lived in the land of these nations were not to be allowed to live. None of them. They were placed under the law of Cherem. They were dedicated to God for destruction. 
All the people of these seven nations were to be utterly destroyed to the last man, woman, and child. Deuteronomy 20, 16-17 Only of the cities of this people which Hashem your Elohim gives you as an inheritance, you do not keep alive any that breathe, but you shall certainly put them under the ban, the Hittite and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Yavusite, as Hashem your Elohim has commanded you. And modern audiences gasp in shock. Genocide. Yes, genocide. God commands his people to enter into the practice of genocide against his enemies. Previously, we have seen God do this before, but on a much larger scale. God put all flesh under the ban in Genesis 7-9. through All but eight people and two to fourteen of every animal. If we have a problem with God-ordained genocide, then we'll have a problem with the flood. We'll have a problem with God's judgment in the first place. With the flood, there was a people group who had reached the point of no return, that people group being the entire world. No redemption or salvation was possible for these people. And so God pulled out his chosen and he delivered them. But when this was finished, he promised never to do this again. And so... How is it that God is to enact his judgment against those who have gone beyond the point of redemption? Well, he could do like he did in number 16 and simply open up the ground and swallow only the people that were destined for destruction. But then if this happened, the land would be left in shambles. The trees, crops, animals, both domestic and wild, and houses would all pay the price as well for the sins of the people. And part of the promise that God gives Israel includes these things. Deuteronomy 6, 10-11 And it shall be when Hashem your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you great and good cities which you did not build, and houses filled with all kinds of goods which you did not fill, and wells dug which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you shall eat and be satisfied. How do you take the people who are ripe for judgment? out of a land without ruining their crops, houses, goods, wells, etc.? Well, you do it man to man, house to house. Now, sure, God could have just given them all heart attacks. Uh, But again, there are reasons that it could not be done this way. Exodus 23, 28-29 says, And I shall send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Chebite and the Canaanite and the Hittite from before you. I shall not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become a waste, and the beast in the field become too numerous for you. But then he could have done the same thing for the man who blasphemed back in chapter 24, when God's people are forced to enact God's justice upon fellow humans. But God is teaching his people how to act in justice, and the things that these people groups were doing were worthy of judgment. And as we just read in Leviticus 26, the judgment and justice of God is something that is often carried out communally. And if Israel herself strays too far, they themselves will face a similar judgment. And that judgment will come at the hands of enemy nations. And so God gives Israel a taste of what is to come by having them participate in his judgment against nations that have reached the point of judgment. And in doing so, the people and animals of these seven nations are put under the ban. Now, we read of this occurring in several other instances in the Bible. When Israel defeated Sihon and Og of Bashan, Deuteronomy 3, 4-6. through 6. 
and we captured all his cities at that time. There was not a city which we did not take from them, sixty cities, all the district of Argov, and the reign of Algenbashan. All these cities were fenced with high walls, gates, and bars, beside them many unwalled towns, and we put them under the ban as we did with Sihon, the sovereign of Heshbon, putting the men, women, and the children of every city under the ban. And again, when Israel comes up against Jericho as the first city in their conquest, Joshua six sixteen through 19 And it came to be at the seventh time when the priests blew the shofars, and Joshua said to the people, Shout, for Hashem has given you the city, and the city shall be put under the ban. It and all that is in it belongs to Hashem. Only Rahab the whore is to live, she and all who are with her in her house, because she hid the messengers that were sent. And you, by all means, guard yourselves for that which is under the ban, lest you come under the ban yourself when you take of that which is under the ban, and make the camp of Israel a curse, and shall trouble it. But all silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are sanctified to Hashem. They go into the treasury of Hashem. And then there's the Amalekites, the people who attacked the poor and the weary of Israel on their way out of Egypt to Mount Sinai. Israel was warned in the Torah that the time would come for the Amalekites to be put under the ban. And that day comes under the rule of King Saul. And Saul? Saul does not obey. Now sure, he kills all of the men, women, and children. But he does not kill their animals. Why? Well, the excuse he gives is so that they can be sacrifices to Hashem. Saul seeks to dedicate these animals to God that already belonged to God. It would be as if someone stole your car only to return it to you as a gift, a magnanimous gesture meant to gain favor. And Saul keeps alive the king of the Amalekites, Agag. Why? Well, this was to gain honor before the people by parading Agag about. In the ancient Near East, it was common to capture the enemy king and then to use him as a trophy of honor. But Saul was not to do this. The Amalekites were under the ban, and Saul disobeyed. Now, this particular law, it's a hard word for us to accept because of the ways that the law has been abused in the past. There have been various genocides throughout history that have not been God-ordained. Rather, they've been enacted out of hatred or greed or power, and not out of a sense of justice. And God's justice is not something that tends to be individual, as we just read in the last chapter. God's justice is something that is often communal. And here is a dichotomy present in this chapter. A contrast of ideas that would be good for us to meditate on. At the beginning, there is the idea of belonging to God for service. And in the end, there is a belonging to God in destruction. These ideas, they stand in contrast to one another throughout the Bible. But we catch a glimpse of it here. You can go one of two ways, dedicated in service or dedicated in destruction. Finally, in verse 30, we encounter the final things that cannot become votive offerings, the tithes. The things given in tithe cannot be vowed to the sacrifice of God because they already belong to God. And that's it. The book of Leviticus. So this last chapter fits into the overall closing theme of the book of Leviticus. And the entire chapter is connected by its own theme. Who can tell me what the theme of this chapter is? Well, if you said the title of this episode, The Things That Belong to God, you would be correct. 
the things that the community can give to God of their own free will, and the distinction between the things that can be given to him and the things that are already his. And with the last theme of the book being community, how is it that this chapter fits into the theme? The things that the community can give to Hashem. One more way that the community can honor and worship Hashem. And so this brings up the question, what are you giving to God? Is it time? Is it goods? Is it everything you own? Romans 12.1 I call upon you, therefore, brothers, through the compassion of Elohim, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, set apart, well-pleasing to God, your reasonable worship. James 4.7 So then subject yourselves to God and resist the devil and he shall flee from you. Mark 8.34 And calling near the crowd with his disciples, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his stake and follow me. This is our challenge. This is the call that is placed before us. To give all of ourselves to God. Not just 10% and the rest is ours. Not just a small gift here or there. Not even just money. Every part of our lives should be dedicated to the service of God. Because nothing is our own. When we are His, everything we own is His. Our heart, our soul, and our resources. Shema. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your resources. And it is in this way that Leviticus closes. There are more ways to serve God than sacrifice. We can serve God with everything, with anything. Just how much we give, it's on us. But giving of ourselves to the service of God is a part of the experience of Dereshchai. So seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Dereshchai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to seeklifesc.com. That's seeklifesc.com. We'll see you again next time as we Darish Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.